morning. It's good to be worshiping together. What a sweet time of praise and worship musically this morning. Thank you to the worship team and to Benj um, and to everyone who makes possible for us to gather and to worship like this. It includes the people that never get praise, only dirty stares when something goes wrong, the media team in the back, so I'm thankful for them as well. This morning, uh, I was intending to preach from chapter 42 in Genesis through chapter 45, verse 15. Tall order, right? Uh, And the title of the sermon is A Family Story of Healing and Brokenness. So this morning, we're looking at part one, all right, part one. Um, Then next week, we'll look at part two. So I couldn't make it past chapter 42, and you'll see why this morning. So your outline is a little different this morning. You'll see scene one there this morning, but there's no scene two or scene three. So as we work through the narrative, uh, just invite you to follow along. But before, uh, before we open uh, God's word or, or read from God's word, join me in praying. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we uh, come to your word this morning, it's our confession that your word is living and it's active and it's powerful. It's dynamic. It speaks into our lives. It It shines the light of your gospel into the darkest recesses of our lives and it illuminates those things that maybe we don't want to have illuminated and that's painful for us. So um, so give us strength today. If that happens, lead us by your Holy Spirit to uh, to live confessionally before you, to make the confession before you of, of our sin, acknowledging our guilt or our sin. Father, strengthen us today to live righteously and holy strengthen us to see the truth of your word today so that as we as we read it uh, you would you would not only minister deep within our soul uh, but God that you would uh, you would fill us with the joy of your Holy Spirit so that we might minister uh, as your ambassadors to others and so father we pray that you would give us eyes to see and minds to comprehend and hearts to love the truth of your word today. And my prayer, Father, is that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 42, 1 through 38, will be where we'll spend our time this morning, and we'll read portions of the text. But you know, as I was looking at the passage and praying through it this week and thinking about this story, it's the story of a family, the story of Joseph, and the story of of brokenness, if you know his history, we'll cover that in just a moment. I began thinking, you know, it's amazing to me how impactful and long-lasting family dynamics are in shaping us as human beings, right? The fact remains, good or bad, our family dynamic takes root in the most profound ways that impact us for the rest of our earthly lives. How many articles or studies or or news stories have we encountered highlighting the negative impact of an absent father upon a troubled child or upon troubled adults later in life? Truthfully, we've all been shaped in positive and negative ways by our family upbringing, maybe in ways that we don't or can't recognize outside of God opening our eyes. And while we won't take time this morning to unpack all the potential variables, the Joseph story, it invites us to look at the shaping of a family. Specifically, to look at the shaping of a family 
who are the chosen people of Israel and their development from a family to a nation. So whether our family experience has minor or major touch points with the narrative, the Joseph story offers us a God-centered view of life. It invites us to enter into the fields of love and forgiveness and to labor in the work of repentance and reconciliation. That's what the Joseph story invites us into, to enter the, the fields of love and forgiveness and labor in the difficult work of repentance and reconciliation. For, for those of us who have kind of forgotten where we've been, it's been four weeks now since we left the Genesis story. Uh, if you've forgotten where we were, or maybe you're joining us this morning for the first time since we've been in Genesis. Joseph's story is an incredible story, but here where, where we come to this morning is that Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. He's the grandson of Isaac, to give us some background. And he's the son of Jacob and Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's father's true, it was Jacob's true love. But around age 17, Joseph's life took a difficult turn, a troubling turn. He was a gifted young boy. He was the apple of his father's eye. He had been given this, remember this multicolored coat that he had been given? But one of his youthful downfalls was not knowing when to stop talking, right? (laughs) He didn't know when to shut up. And so for Joseph, he said some things that continued to exacerbate this rift between him and his brothers. And as we all learn in life, some things are better left unsaid. So the combination of him being his father's favorite and boasting of his superiority over his brothers by sharing his dreams only added to his brother's hatred of him. But really, it was no secret that Joseph's brothers hated him. You know, this really had to do, if we kind of, we step back a little bit, it really had to do with the sister wives of Joseph, Leah and Rachel. Go back and read the story of this family if you're not familiar with the sister wives, Leah and Rachel. And Leah and Rachel, in this birth war, they they even gave their servants to Jacob as wives to produce children. So Jacob had four wives, but he loved one. He loved Rachel, right? But Rachel, she was barren. Leah, though, Rachel's sister, Jacob's other wife, loved Jacob and gave him children, but she could never garner the love of her husband. Both women had something the other one wanted. The family dysfunction continued to increase as the family grew and the children grew older. Jealousy between the wives led to this bitter family life. Once Rachel bore Joseph, Jacob showered him with love and he he remained distant from his other children. It's both hard to imagine and, at the same time, easy to see how dysfunction would grow in such a household. After leaving Laban and eventually settling down in Canaan, one day the ten older brothers went off to graze the flocks. Now, at the request of Joseph's father, Joseph was sent off to find his brothers while they were pasturing the flocks. When he finds him a good distance from home, the brothers, seeing him coming in that bright-colored coat, They conspire against him, and they conspire to kill him. Ultimately, they sell him to a traveling band of Midianite Midianite as, as a slave. Then they get home, and they lie to their father about Joseph, and they presented his prized coat to Jacob, 
And it had rips in it and blood on it as evidence of Joseph being mauled by a wild animal. Meanwhile, Joseph at age 17, he's on his way to Egypt as a slave. He, he's been rescued out of the pit, but now he's on his way to be enslaved. And when he gets to Egypt, he becomes a servant of Potiphar. Right? Potiphar was a, uh, a high-ranking Egyptian official. Now Joseph... He's a, a good-looking, strapping young man, and everything he touches prospers. Everything. And Potiphar, the leader over his house, actually sees this in Joseph, and he makes Joseph chief over his home, second only to Potiphar. He entrusts everything in his home to Joseph. Then Potiphar's wife, one day, tries to seduce Joseph. And although he takes the moral high road and flees, she retains his coat and then frames him, claiming that he violated her. Joseph is once again thrown into the pit, into the prison. It's the second time he finds himself in the pit. Literally, the same word is used there. But then in a similar way, he, he grows in favor and he's put in charge of caring for the prisoners. And while he's doing that, he meets two prisoners who were Pharaoh's servants and they have troubling dreams, and he interprets their dreams. And then one is released, the cupbearer, the baker then is killed as Joseph interprets. When the cupbearer is released, he forgets about Joseph for two years. Now, by this time, Joseph is 30 years old. It's been 13 long years since he was sold into slavery and since he last saw his father or his brothers. Joseph has had a series of great injustices flung on him. As we read this story from a strictly human perspective, we, we might begin to think Murphy's Law is in effect, right? Anything that can go wrong, what? Will go wrong, right? But there are hints along the, along the line, hints along the story, detailing God's sovereign hand over Joseph's suffering. One day, Pharaoh had a dream. No one could interpret the dream. No one in Pharaoh's kingdom, no wise man could interpret this dream. And so the cupbearer, all of a sudden, two years later, remembers there was this one guy when I was in prison, Joseph. And he was able to interpret my dream. Maybe he can interpret yours too. So Joseph is called to appear before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh then shares his dream, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, giving glory to God for its interpretation. And then what happens? Pharaoh sets Joseph over all the land as governor of Egypt to make provision during the seven years of plenty because the seven years of famine are coming quickly. And in chapter 42, this is where we re-enter the story. It's now been 20 years since Joseph has seen his father or his brothers. And just by way of, of remembering and reminding us two big picture elements that we need to remember about the whole of the Genesis narrative, right? You can see that in your outline. Number one, all the events center around God's work on behalf of his covenant people. When we read through the Genesis narrative, we're reading that God is doing a work to develop and to bring his covenant people along. He's watching over the covenant that he has made. He is faithfully and steadfastly bringing his covenant people along, fulfilling his promise. This is one of the things, the big picture things we see in the narrative. But secondly, secondly, we see that 
Genesis is a, a recorded history for God's people. It's a history as they move from bondage in Egypt, heading toward the promised land, right? And so as they're, as they're reading this or, or it's being shared with them, you've you got to kind of put remember that, that perspective as we enter the text. This is a kind of a story of beginnings, all the way from Genesis 1 to now with the story of Joseph as a, a patriarch. It's a story of beginnings. So this morning, here's what I want us to see. I want us to see that God is at work through all of life's circumstances to accomplish his mission through his people. God is at work through all of life's circumstances to accomplish his mission through his people, and that includes every one of us who confess the name of Christ as Lord sitting here this morning. God is at work through all of life's circumstances to accomplish his mission through his people. In the first scene, the only scene we look at this morning, chapter 42, we look at the crucible of crisis, the crucible of crisis. And in chapter 42, it paints this grim picture of the divided and broken family. And in chapter 42, we learn that confession and reconciliation and forgiveness is hard. In fact, years of sin and foolish choices have plagued the family. So that chapter 42 is actually bracketed in the beginning and the end with the looming crisis of death. In fact, it almost seems imminent. If God doesn't intervene, death is coming quickly. So look at chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another, right? It's almost like there's this this disgust with his sons. Why are you standing there looking around? We're about to starve. And in verse 2, he says, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. And so this is the language of crisis. And we fast forward to the end of chapter 42, verse 36. Jacob, their father, said to them, You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I don't bring back to you Benjamin. Put, put, it, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But verse 38, he said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. You see the bracket here, death brackets the scene. The scene is one of physical and spiritual desperation. But I want to read from verses 3 through 11 as the main portion of our text this morning, and we'll narrate the rest. Beginning in verse 3. So then Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, right? They've, they've been given the command by their father, and now they're going down to buy grain. But, but Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Let me just briefly remind us, Benjamin is the son of Rachel, right? Rachel had one other son. Who was that son? Joseph. So Joseph and Benjamin are the two sons by Rachel. But on their way to Canaan, when they were leaving Laban, Joseph's father-in-law, Rachel and Leah's dad, when they were leaving there, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, right? And so Joseph was crushed. And so Benjamin's all he's got left. Joseph has died. This is a father desperately hanging on 
to his only son that he truly loves at this point. So Jacob, Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Verse 5, Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold, all the, sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Well, perhaps the hearing of the statement, we are honest men, shocked Joseph to the core. He sees his brothers there. He hasn't seen them in 20 years. Can you imagine the tension that he feels? I mean, has he, has he waited for this moment? He's probably wondered a thousand times what it would be like to see his brothers. He's, he's longed to be reunited with his father. And now the day has come, 20 years in the making. Is it anger and hurt that he feels, or is it compassion and love that he feels? Maybe it's a little bit of both. In verse 7, it says he treated them like strangers, right? He didn't let them know that who he was, and he spoke roughly to them, to them. Where do you come from? You're spies, right? Three times in this encounter, Joseph calls his brother spies. Now, to be discovered as a spy was punishable by death, and so the brothers naturally are fearful And then in verses 12 through 25, they defend themselves, claiming that they've only come to buy food. So Joseph, he devises a test to test his brothers. He wants them to feel the weight of their sin and their crime against him. So he incarcerates them for three days, and then he releases them, but he keeps Simeon locked up. He keeps him in custody. There's one condition, though. The condition is that they must return home and then come back with their younger brother Benjamin, then he will know that they truly are honest men, as they say. Now, all of this serves to remind the brothers of their crime against Joseph. And in verse 21, having been threatened with starvation, with imprisonment, and with death, for the first time they own up to their guilt. Now, they didn't recognize Joseph which means they didn't realize that he could understand the dialect in which they spoke. In verses 21 and 22, look at their words. Then they said to one another, In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul. Right? They looked down in the pit after they had beat him, stripped him of his coat and thrown him in the pit. They looked down 20 years ago and they saw the distress in his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us, they say. Then Reuben pipes up and answers. Reuben was the oldest. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? It's kind of like the I told you so moment, right? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Well, Joseph hears all of this, and he understands it. And it brings him to tears. Verse 24 says that he wept. He wept. 
For 20 years, he hasn't known what to think, and now he hears his brothers confessing and acknowledging their guilt and what they did was wrong to him. He just wept. I think it shows us that Joseph isn't interested here in getting even. He's, he's, he's overcome with emotion. He's, he's beginning the process, truly, of reconciliation. And we know that as readers because we can read ahead in the story. This process of reconciliation with his brothers is a long process, and it's a difficult road, and it's the same for us. When we come to, a, come to the point of needing to be reconciled with someone, sometimes it's a, it's a long and difficult and hard road. Then Joseph had their grain sacks filled, and he, he sent them on their way. He instructed the steward, though, to do something. He said, put the money that they brought to buy the grain, put it back in the mouth of their sacks. And so as they're traveling, they settle down for the first night. One of them opens his sack and tries to get some money out. I mean, not money, tries to get some grain out to feed, uh, to feed his donkey. And as he does, he sees the money in the mouth of his sack, and he's terrified. And then the brothers exclaim, what is this God has done to us? They were deathly afraid. Arriving back in Canaan, they, they recount all of this to their father. This is in chapter 42. As they recount all of this to their father. They're explaining the need to return with Benjamin, their youngest brother. And then as they all open their sacks of grain, they all find the money has come back with them. And they are all fearful at this point, even Jacob. And so the tension builds as they recognize that not only have they been deemed as spies, now it can easily be the case that they're going to be deemed as thieves. So the scene ends here with Jacob lamenting the loss of the two sons that he has suffered. And he's refusing now to allow his youngest to return with the brothers. In chapter 43, the story changes, but we won't get there this morning. This is all somewhat of a whirlwind. Jacob and his sons are in crisis mode. And they're all on the brink of of breaking beyond repair. The saga of the family is shocking when when we read it. We think this is the beginning of God's covenant people, right? With a big looming question mark. Really? This is how God birthed his people, a nation? This is who Christ, the promised Messiah, descends from? Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, slept with his father's concubine in order to shame his father because he felt unloved. Simeon and Levi went and slaughtered the Shechemites for what they did to their sister Dinah, whom Jacob cowardly, the father cowardly, wouldn't take up for, who had wrongly led them to a place they they should have never been as a family. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute. They beat and sold their brother Joseph into slavery. All of these things are in the background and more of this chosen family. We kind of scratch our heads and we think, how in the world can God remain in covenant with such wretches? I mean, don't you have that thought as you read this? I did. But then we're reminded repeatedly in the New Testament exhortations that sting every time we read them, right? Put to death what is earthly in you. Put off the old self with its evil practices. Why do we continue to return to those old ways and those old evil practices? Jesus exhorts us in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. destroy. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Or to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Does that ever sting you? Place your hopes in something other than the gospel of Christ, the grace of Christ. You find that maybe you've placed your hope in the way that you can earn God's favor. Or trying to earn or be good enough. Trying to do works to be saved. So we, we scratch our heads and we think, how can this be? How can God remain in covenant with such wretches? And we recognize that he, in the same way, remains in covenant with us, such wretches. Chapter 42 shows us yet another example. Get this. It shows us another example of the length that God is willing to go to sovereignly care for his covenant people. Oh, what, what a gracious gospel fruit, right? Is this not what Christ has done? The greatest way that we can see God going to lengths in order to sovereignly care for his covenant people is through the cross of Christ. He has sovereignly cared for us and he has redeemed us through the sacrificial and atoning work of Jesus Christ. What lengths our God has gone to in order to secure our redemption and our salvation. You know, there are times in life when God's God's mercy to us comes in severe ways. And that is exactly what we see here for the chosen family. The severe mercies of God are reflected on this page. And you know, God God will allow us and even bring us to crisis moments and situations in life to grab our attention. And this is exactly what he's doing in chapter 42. The broken family isn't ready to be God's covenant people who extend God's blessing to the nations, right? Because that's what they're supposed to do. That was part of the, the covenant promise to Abraham. But they're not yet ready. They can't live peaceably with one another. How then can they bless others when they can't bless one another, right? It's a reasonable question. But herein lies the great challenge for the church as God's family, doesn't it? As God's new covenant people, adopted as sons and daughters, according to Ephesians 1, as as Dr. David read in our our opening time. Think about Jesus' last uh, words at the Last Supper with his disciples. Call them the words of institution. Jesus said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, right? As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. This this blood of the new covenant, it has formed us and made us into a new covenant people. A new covenant people who are to show the kingdom of Christ advancing through the love of Christ within, right? In fact, Jesus says in John 13, 35, he said, they will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. By the way that you love one another. So, God uses a severe famine to bring about and to begin a deep work of reconciliation and healing in the life of this family. Now, this application really crosses over from the church into our personal lives as well. Their crucible of crisis is forcing them to deal with something called past sins, right? 
And let me tell you, God has a way of uncovering those sins that have long been covered up. The ones that we've tried to sweep under the rug and never deal with are the ones that we continue to walk in and presumptuously live our faith. The bondage of their past won't allow them to move forward experiencing God's blessing and healing. If they're to be, as Vaughn Roberts says, right, God's people in God's place, then they must learn to live under God's rule and blessing. They have to come to a point of confessing their sin. They have to acknowledge their guilt before they can heal and move forward in God's mission. Now hear this out. We, like the brothers, we tend to carry our unconfessed sins around like a weighted vest. Right? We do. Maybe for you this morning, there is unconfessed sin that you've been harboring and it's weighing you down. Maybe it's even made you to become a miserable person or a miserable Christian. So let me exhort you. Have you confessed it to God? Confess it to God. Though it's difficult, it's hard to do sometimes, oftentimes, there is great joy in walking in the light of Christ. Listen to what the psalmist writes about this, about harboring sin and the weight of it, the guilt of it. Psalm 32, 2. He says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Listen to what he says. For when I kept silent, right, when I held it in, when I didn't confess it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for your day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. You know, God still works in similar ways through crucibles of crisis in our lives to bring us to breaking points. He allows us to see our guilt. It's, it's, to, it's, it's so that we might confess our sin and begin the long road of healing. And while we may not have a one-to-one correlation with the sins of Jacob, right? A, a father who shows favoritism and breeds dysfunction in his family or with Joseph's ten brothers whose lives are anything but God-glorifying. And though your sin may not be as heinous in the eyes of the world, still we recognize that we are imperfect sinners and we must come to a place of confessing our sin and acknowledging our guilt before God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, listen, this nails us, right? And you were dead in the trespasses and sin. This speaks to our condition, our guilt before God. But in Galatians 2.20, Paul tells the church, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, right? This is what happens when we come to faith. We, the old self dies. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So As you think back over your life, can you recall those moments where God is God has brought you through the crucible of crisis. We've got to shake in your world to grab your attention. Maybe it was at your conversion, or maybe it was some through, through some other life-altering event. Or maybe for you, maybe, maybe you're actually going through one of those crisis moments now. And as you contemplate God at work in your life, will you surrender to what he's doing now? what he wants to do now, 
Can you give him praise for where he has brought you from, what he has done in your life? I love the quote, this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Maybe for you, even this morning, you, you know someone who's going through a crucible of crisis. You might be the one that God is calling to speak into their life. And so will you be the light of Christ in their physical and spiritual desperation? Will you be a minister of mercy, a minister of the grace of the gospel into their lives? But There's one other perspective before we close this morning that we need to consider here, and that's Joseph's perspective. You know, I saved this one to last because no one likes to be the perpetrator. Everyone wants to be the victim, right? So we always want to think about what others have maybe done to us, not what we have perhaps done to hurt someone else. Another example of severe mercy is Joseph's harsh, harsh speech to his brothers. There are times in life where a stern word needs to be spoken. In fact, I can think of a few times in my life where people mercifully spoke a stern word to me, and though it was unpleasant, it was difficult, it was hard, it was for my good, and it made a difference in my life, it made a difference in my ministry, made a difference in who I am as a father or as a person. This is exactly what's happening for the brothers, right? Because in verse 28, they respond, what is it that, what is this that God has done to us? You see, through Joseph's words, their consciences are awakened, and for the first time, For the first time, they see their treatment by God as God's hand of judgment for their sin. And they see their treatment of their brother as wrong. Reuben had already alluded to this in in verse 22 when he said, So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You see, the weight of their guilt had overwhelmed them. Not only had Joseph been over here in Egypt for 20 years, but they had been harboring this guilt this crime, keeping it quiet, lying to their father for 20 years. You know, perhaps you've been hurt by a family member or or someone who their own selfishness has caused you tremendous pain and suffering. This is often the case for, for spouses who have suffered betrayal or divorce, especially for children who come from divorced homes. The road to healing and wholeness looks different for you. We can take note of Joseph's faith journey, and we see that all the suffering he endured, he never forgot God. But what becomes clear in the Joseph story is that his stern word to his brothers was birthed out of a love and wanting what was best for his family. So here's the thing. Our caution here is to recognize what I believe to be Joseph's motivation. It's this. We know this because in, in, in chapter 45, verse 5, and In 7, he tells his brothers, right, at the end of this, at the time when they've become reconciled, here's what he tells his brothers. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. What incredible words. Or look, listen to verse 20 of chapter 50 at the, at the end of the Genesis narrative. As for you, he tells them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph recognized God's sovereign hand over his life 
and over his circumstances. And although his brothers meant evil toward him, God brought about good, right? So friends, hear me out. You can't change the past and what has happened to you. But neither can you hold on to it and let it enslave you. You can't change the past and what's happened to you. But neither can you hold on to it and let it enslave you. This passage doesn't give us a prescription for dealing with the suffering of our past as much as it it teaches us to trust God with our present. We have to trust God with our present. Passages like Romans chapter 12 that Jim read a few moments ago during our confession time, repay no one evil for evil, but give, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Our passages like Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. So if you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar, remember there that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there. Go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. These are, these are passages that teach us how to, how to go and to be reconciled, right? We see the great need for it here in the Joseph story. As far as we know, Joseph never had the opportunity to return home and to deal with the, the hurt that was caused by, by his brothers. But we also recognize that through his suffering, God was doing something much, much greater. His suffering was actually for the good of all people. He tells his brothers, right in 45, 7 and 8, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God brought me here to preserve life. You know, this sounds a lot like the suffering of Christ, doesn't it? And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, For it was fitting that he, that's Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Or even even more so, we, we see that Christ, our great high priest, sympathizes with us in our sufferings. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and, and 16, he, he sympathizes with our weakness in every respect he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And the result of that is that we can draw near with confidence to this throne of grace to find help in our time of need. The good news is this. The good news is that the road to healing our brokenness begins with confession of our sin and surrender to God through Christ. And in the midst of crisis, Joseph's brothers teach us to look to God and to confess the guilt of our sin. And in the midst of crisis, Joseph teaches us to look to God and to trust him with our present. And the exchange, well, the exchange is this. Just as Christ mercifully reconciles us to God, so he calls us to be ministers of mercy who seek to reconcile others to God. You see? So God is at work through all of life's circumstances to accomplish his mission through his people. He was doing it through Jacob's family and through Joseph in the midst of sufferings. In church, he's still doing it today. In each of us, through the church. So be encouraged. Bear up under suffering for the cause of Christ. Be challenged. Seek reconciliation. Be a minister of mercy, right? Be a minister of mercy to others. Share the gospel with others in ways that will bring about redemption and reconciliation. And let us follow as the Spirit leads us. I'm going to close us in prayer this morning.
allow us to respond as the Lord leads each of you this morning. Maybe it's to spend a few moments in prayer. God has brought something to mind that you need to work through and confess before Him. And if that's the case, don't delay. Don't deny it. Work through it. Seek help from a friend. Seek counsel from a professional. Come speak with me. I'll be happy to give you counsel or point you in the right direction. But let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ our Savior, who is indeed the one who can bring healing to our brokenness. Thank you, God, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That as we read your word in the story of a family who is in the midst of brokenness and needing healing then, and we see how you worked sovereignly to, to bring that about, Lord, we know that today, even today, you still work in the same way. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit you dwell within us. Thank you, God, that by your Holy Spirit you lead God and direct us. And we pray that you would give us strength and endurance to, do, to take the steps to begin the hard work of, of reconciliation. We ask, God, that you would use us as ministers of mercy to help bring about reconciliation between others and you and between others and family, or between others and those whom they are separated from. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Anymore. 
of new life cause I am yours forever and Jesus you are mine oh Jesus you are mine amen you can be seated